der Sharing Stiftung Podcast. Welcome to a new episode of the Sharing Stiftung Podcast. My name is Christina Landbrecht. I'm an art historian and a curator, and I'm program director for the arts at Sharing Stiftung in Berlin. Today, I have the pleasure to introduce two speakers to you, namely the artist Jingbo and the scientist Tom Crowther. We are thrilled that they have agreed to do an episode for the Sharing Stiftung podcast. Before they start talking to one another, let me briefly introduce them. Zheng Bo is an artist and a university lecturer from Hong Kong. His art, and I should add his activism, lies at the intersection between plants and politics, between human and non-human life. He works with film and drawing and conducts workshops in which participants are sensitized to look at and also to interact with plants in a way that is most probably new to them. His solo exhibition at Gropius Bau, which was titled Wang Wu Council in Berlin, ended on August 23. But one of his works remains to be seen in Berlin, titled You are the 0.01%. It belongs to a series of so-called living slogans and is installed in the courtyard of Schering Stiftung in Berlin. It can be visited there until September 30th. The slogan refers to a scientific paper, which was published in 2018, titled The Biomass Distribution on Earth. It was written by the biologists Yinon Baron and Ron Milo in collaboration with the biophysicist Rob Phillips. The message of this paper is quite distressing. While humanity makes up just 0.01% of the Earth's biomass, it consumes 30% of the entire primary production of the biosphere. So what to do? In order to protect biodiversity and to address climate change, scientists have understood that it is vital to study global ecosystems. One successful researcher in this field is Tom Crowther. He's a professor of global ecosystem ecology at ETH Zürich, and his work aims to generate a holistic understanding of the global scale ecological systems which regulate the Earth's climate. Crowther received a postdoctoral fellowship from the Yale Climate and Energy Institute and was awarded a Marie Curie Fellowship in 2015 to research the impact of carbon cycle feedbacks on climate change at the Netherlands Institute of ecology. Welcome, Tom Crowther and Jane Bo. We're very happy to have you today and are really looking forward to your conversation. Hi, Tom. It's great to have this chance to talk to you. I'm in Berlin and you are in Zurich, right? Yes. Thanks for, for having the opportunity to chat. I'm in Zurich um, on a rainy, rainy Monday morning. Right. I'm walking in a park uh, near I'm staying in Berlin. The occasion of this conversation is that I have, you know, I normally live in Hong Kong and I, as an artist, I was here in Berlin as an artist in residence at the Gropius Bauer Museum here. And I also worked with the Sharing Foundation last year to talk to scientists in Berlin to produce new works. And this summer, in addition to my exhibition at the Gropius Bauer, I have a living installation with plants at the Sharing Foundation. So I'll just describe the work to you. It's a slogan. The slogan is, you are the 0.01%. And the slogan is made with living plants. So I decided to do this work because I read a research article on the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences in 2019. The scientists estimated that the humans, we only account for 0.01% of the total biomass on planet Earth but we occupy half of the land and you know we use 30% of the primary production so i when i saw that 
article, I immediately thought about the slogan, the Occupy Wall Street slogan. You know, we are the 99%. This notion of huge human inequality has been quite known, I think, since Occupy Wall Street. But I, you know, I, I realized even myself, you know, I didn't know that we are so tiny in terms of biomass on the planet. And then I, you know, I, I came across your research and you've been doing a lot of work sort of making us understand the bigger picture, right? Do you want to just describe a bit about your research? Yeah, great. Um, our research is we study ecology at ETH Zurich and we are trying to understand the global scale of ecology so that we can understand the entirety of Earth's ecosystems. And that helps us to, to have perspective so that we can see where we fit in the big, big picture. And we can also see how all of our actions can impact the biodiversity and the carbon storage around the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I saw that kind of the, the first research that you became very well known was the Counting Tree Project, right? You estimated there are three trillion trees on the planet. What was the number before? What was the estimate before? Before that study, we thought there was an estimate that the Earth was home to about 400 billion trees. Mm-hmm. So uh, this new census, this new big data study revealed that we're almost seven or eight times more than we previously thought. But that's not to suggest that there's more trees than there were before. All it means is that we've, we've refined our understanding of those trees. So what made it possible to have a much better understanding of the global situation than before? So improvements in satellite technology have been incredible because we can get global coverage so that we can see every ecosystem on the planet. But for us, the most important thing was the use of big data technologies. So we combined lo- data from millions of locations around the world where people had actually been standing on the ground, counting the trees, saying how big they are, saying which species they are. And that allows us to bring all that data together to look at the patterns uh, and the variation in tree numbers across the globe to make a map. And that was sort of how we got our, our global, global estimate. But you know, I, I was really taken by it because, you know, you, you were not a world leader when you were doing that, right? So, you know, you didn't work at the UN, but you were able to do this as a scientist. Right. How did you, yeah, so what did you do to, to be able to really gather sort of the data that you need to come to a global understanding? Um, yeah, I was a postdoc in Yale University at the time. And I was, uh, you know, just starting my academic career. And actually, my focus of my research had been on microbes in the soil until then. And it, and it still is, really. But in order to under, understand the scale, I realized that we need to be able to put all of this research about microbes and other organisms into context by understanding the scale of ecosystems. And so, really, I just started by contacting experts and scientists and ecologists all over the world who were familiar with their ecosystems. And by doing that, we ended up building a a vast network of ecologists around the world who could share their data. And that is the basis for all of these these models. That that sounds to me to be a key step, right? To build this network of ecologists. Exactly, yeah. And you did it as a single scientist. Yep. You you know, it was not part of sort of a huge National Science Foundation grant or something. 
Yeah, it was just me sort of going at it for go, going at emails for a while. It was uh, <laughs> quite a, quite a process, but it was it was worthwhile. But now, do you think it's you know because I always feel we live in such a global time, but you know these these very basic understanding of, of the global ecological situation should be in primary school textbooks. Yeah, right. So we we should all have grown up knowing you know there are three trillion trees on the planet, and then you know now you also talk about the potential to to have um, the number of trees we could have if we really allow it. And you also talk about the the carbon cycle, the, all the global estimates. You know, also the to, the total biomass research that I just cited. You know, I I feel as an artist, you know, or as a citizen, I feel these should be very well known common facts of all humanity on the planet. But the the case is, it's not. It's still. It's still only known to maybe people who read science or people who really care about these things. Yeah. So how do you think about the situation? I think you're very right. I think until very recently, all of our worldly knowledge was trapped up in books and you know the the brains of smart people. And then you know a few decades ago, the internet was a revolution in learning, and it meant that we could we could start to have this collective learning experience. And you know, a few years later, I think mapping technologies really started to to catch on. Things like Google Maps and Apple Maps that allow us now to bridge to take on a sort of new dimension, which is space. We can not only learn from the collective knowledge, but we also know where we exist in space in relation to all the shops and supermarkets and and hairdressers. But I think we are still entirely disconnected from nature, and it's you know, nature is seen as you know one of the The happy clappy things that we talk about, you know, it's at the, at the end of the the TV pro, uh, the news program, or at the end of the the newspaper, the right. the nice thing that just gets mentioned at the end, like uh, how how trees are lovely. But in essence, nature is the most fundamental thing keeping us alive. It it should be the very first thing that we understand. And and until now, we are totally disconnected from our. Our place in nature. We don't understand the scale of nature. We don't understand how ecosystems vary across the globe, and so we don't understand our impact and our footprint on on nature. And this technology is now starting to build a revolution that can hopefully help to bridge that gap, so that we can start to have a real connected, tangible global understanding of nature and where we fit into it. And that I hope might encourage us and enable us to manage ecosystems and manage biodiversity in a healthier way. Mm-hmm. I, you know, when I grew up in China in primary school, we would have all these subjects, and nature is there. You know, there, there's one topic called natural science, but kind of lumps all physics, a little bit of、uh, sort of human physiology, and a little bit of nature in it. But you know, what's beyond us is the 99.99 percent, and we're so tiny. Then. You know, our news coverage, our education should really be proportional to the situation on the planet. But I, I also want to ask you, the fantasy that we have is it may not just be fantasy. So even though we're so tiny in terms of biomass or in terms of number, right? So even number of trees are way surpass the number of humans. But our reach on the planet, you know, we occupy half the land, and then you know, we we use so much energy, we we completely change the carbon. I mean, not completely, but we significantly affect the carbon cycle, etc. So our power, real power or imagined power, is much bigger than our biomass or numbers, etc. Right. So that kind of pumps up our sort of vanity that we are the most significant. 
presence on the planet. Of course, now we, you know, many of us understand this is not sustainable. But at least in terms of the current moment, that's that's the feeling, right? So all of us, have, you know, all of you know, I I I live on the edge of the city. You live in the city, and particularly in cities, we don't feel we are the the zero point zero one percent. We don't feel there are three trillion trees around, mm. right? Well. Yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting because humans do have a, a bit of a distorted perspective on how important we are. Right. Um, and it's important to take this with the right grain of salt because, yes, we have categorically changed the carbon cycle in unsustainable ways that cannot maintain the lives that we are living now and the biodiversity that exists on the planet now. We have transformed that mm-hmm. system. But it's also really important to understand that the scale of our footprint we are not the biggest and most impactful organisms on this planet. As you, as you mentioned, you know, plants absorb 10, 12 times more carbon than humans emit every single year. But the difference is they also absorb 10 or 12 times as much. So they're in balance. Uh, and, and that's been the state of these ecosystems for a very long time, that the fluxes of carbon from microbes in the soil and from plants uh, growing above the soil are vastly, vastly bigger than what humans are emitting. It's just that they are doing so in a balanced way. And human emissions are entirely unbalanced. Mm-hmm. We are currently still in the you know, explosion of human population driven by exploitative use of ecosystems and exploitative use of resources. We are, we're not, at a mass scale, we are certainly not sustainably making use of these resources, which means that we will ultimately use up and, and, and substantially alter the environment that we have evolved in. And that, you know, the earth will continue to exist. Plants and microorganisms will continue to go once we've you know, once we've damaged ecosystems so much that we can't persist, um, they will still survive. It's just that we're changing the environment into one that humans are not adapted to survive within. Mm-hmm. I'll come to this sort of um, <laughs> our future. I, I also want to ask you what's your opinion on that. But I want to I want to stay on this the, the question I started with a little bit. As an artist, I draw plants every day. But I draw plants actually living next to me. So, you know, I, I, I draw one or maybe a very small group of plants. So in a way, my practice has a, is completely opposite of what you do. So I, I you know, I, I focus on what's really next to me and in such a small scale. So I think this is very important to me as an artist so that I really understand what's around me and, you know, I understand what I call my plant neighbors. You know, I love to read and understand the global situation. But I, you know, as artists, I always feel as humans, we don't, it's very difficult for us to act if we only comprehend something rationally. We usually don't act until we have some emotional response. So understanding these large, uh, global numbers, I think they register, you know, I remember, you know, I, I, can, I can remember these numbers, but it's, even as someone who really care about these things, I find it very difficult to to actually have an emotional response. I mean, the work I I have installed at the Sharon Foundation kind of make turn the stem into a living situation, but still, I, I I'm not completely satisfied with what I have done as an artist. So I wonder how you, as a scientist, have emotional response to the research that you do. 
Um, because I, I would imagine you spent a lot of time looking at data, right? Looking at computer models, etc. So how do you, like what kind of emotional response do you actually draw from in addition to the research? Where, where I don't know. I mean, like, how, like, do you feel very emotional while you're processing the data? I think when I'm processing the data, I don't feel emotional. Right. But when the, when the patterns emerge, yes, they have a, a tangible meaning and a connection to, yeah, well, once they, once they, once you see those patterns emerging and those, and those results coming out, you start to have that emotional connection that is really powerful. And it's because it's providing information that's fundamental to how we live and fundamental to how the planet exists. So it is meaningful. It's inherently uh, powerful. And, and I think underlying it all is the fact that we are all directly connected to the power of nature. The, the wonder of nature is, is mm-hmm. fundamental to our happiness, but the functions that nature provides are fundamental to our survival. So yes, it's a, it can be a very emotional thing when you, when you see those results. I talked to Matthias Rillig, a scientist here in Berlin. So we were in a forest outside of Berlin. It's a World Heritage site with um, beach forest from the last um, ice age. And even in that World Heritage site, I see a tree plantation of fast-growing pine trees. And, you know, I, I'm not an ecologist, but just by walking through, and I can tell the huge difference between uh, primeval forest versus the tree plantation. It looks, that the tree plantation looks very depressing. And the trees are so unhappy, even to me, and you mentioned monoculture in one of your talks, right? And you now advocate, I mean, you're part of the, the Trillion Tree Project, and you made a very important point saying it's not just the number, it's also the biodiversity of the trees that we plant. I mean, I, I want to ask you how, what, what is the, the huge consequence of you know, we want to plant one, one trillion trees. What's the consequence of monoculture versus a biodiverse trillion trees? I guess there's a lot packed into there. Essentially, the basics are that in, in ecological systems, as in, all, you know, a fundamental core concept is that every species depends on other species to survive. Mm-hmm. So, and that includes humans and all of our crop plants. We fundamentally cannot survive without all of the other species and neither can a monoculture of pine trees. Mm-hmm. They need the microorganisms in the soil to, to continue facilitating their growth. They need the other, other species of plants to compete and to facilitate one another in, in mechanisms that maintain healthy biodiversity and carbon sequestration. But I think biodiversity or, or the mixture of species is also fundamental for the resistance and the resilience of these ecosystems in the long term. Because if you have a monoculture of pine trees and then a pine beetle comes, comes along uh, or a, or a a swarm of bark beetles you can that are adapted to that one specific specific species then you lose that entire forest whereas when you've got a mixture of species you're much much more resilient and and resistant to change and finally when we have mixtures of species you end up getting much more carbon sequestration we've repeatedly seen this over time that in um, species rich combinations you see much more carbon storage. And that's because different species are using different resources. So they're not all competing with one another for exactly the same resource. And that means you can get vastly more carbon storage at, at the local scale. We did a, a study globally showing that we can increase the, or if we were to reduce the world's forests, 
by uh, to to the most productive monoculture, we would lose about thirty percent of the productivity in those forests uh, simply right. by even if we kept the same number of species, um, and that you know it it just shows the the incredible massive importance of biodiversity in in maintaining product productive systems in the long term. So it, it's relatively easier for us to understand planting trees, but if we really want to have um, biodiversity in the soil. What's possible? Uh, you know, as a, you know, someone I completely don't know. Much, uh, I don't know about forestry, etc. So, what's possible now to to sort of cultivate biodiversity in the soil? Well, there's many ways, but I'm going to start by touching on the thing that you said there about planting trees, because planting trees is only one tiny, tiny fraction of the ways that we restore plants, you know, the, the trees, if you put a fence round round your field, in many places in the world, trees will naturally regenerate or, or plants yes. will naturally regenerate. And nature will do that in a much better and more su- sustainable way than, than the planting of trees. But of course, in many places, tree planting is brilliant for, for local economic sustainability. And you can bring, uh, you, you know, really healthy mixtures of species can can help secure economic uh, futures of, of local communities. So it's part of a portfolio of, of solutions. But the same sort of thing is true for microbes. We can, the most important way of, of restoring microbes is protect the soil, allow ecosystems to regenerate and they will, and, and healthy microorganisms will regenerate. But you can also do the equivalent of planting a tree, which is you can introduce microbial, healthy, you know, diverse microbial mixtures into soils. And that can be a one way of really speeding up the succession process to, to get towards a more productive system. But there's also in agricultural systems, a vast diversity of things that we can do to improve microbial diversity. Things like including cover, cover crops, reduced tilling, mm-hmm. Uh, introduction of of carbon rich compounds like biochar. There's many uh, approaches like this that can help improve microbial diversity, not only in natural ecosystems but also in agricultural ones. Mm-hmm. As a person, I, I kind of lean towards Taoist uh, sensibilities. So one of the central ideas in Taoism is Wu Wei could be translated as non action or non coercive action. I've done projects where we transplant weeds into uh, museum gardens, etc. because I always feel, like you said, if we just protect the land, other species are actually wiser than us. They actually know a much better process of regenerating a healthy habitat. You know, perhaps as an artist who has no interest in, in sort of speeding up things, I'm curious as a scientist, what's the you already mentioned the trade-off between protecting land and just let nature rehabilitate itself versus planting trees as a community. But in, I'm curious, from the research perspective, do you see kind of a carbon curve? Maybe if we plant trees early on, the carbon capture is faster than let, letting nature regenerate itself, but then at some point it flips. Is this the case? Well, this is actually the the subject of a lot of ongoing research. Yes, in many parts of the world, planting trees or assisting ecosystems can speed up the process in a healthy way, but it takes a real good local, you know, understanding of the local ecology. And in some places, nature will will do it more effectively at the at the beginning, and and you don't need intervention. Uh, and we're trying to figure out which parts of the world benefit from and don't benefit from that human intervention. But what we do know is that. Across all of those systems, 
a diverse mixture of species is always the most uh, mm-hmm. productive way. I want to ask you a little bit about your thinking on sort of biosphere inequality, because I mentioned that the reason I started this artwork is to link the biomass situation where the 0.01% to the human inequality. So maybe this will also link, will circle back to what you were saying about the future. So I, I'm always curious why in the biosphere we have got to this point where we, we become so dominant, even though we are so tiny. So, so it's, it's both at the same time, right? So from some perspective, we are so tiny, but um, in terms of energy use, carbon footprint, etc., we are hugely present. I say it's biosphere inequality, which mirrors the human inequality in our current social situation. But now I also understand in earlier phases where maybe in smaller situations, uh, you know, bacteria can become very dominant in, in a very short time. And perhaps in early evolutionary history, some species also are like us, even though they are tiny in terms of biomass or number, etc. But they also have huge carbon impact. Is this the case? Is inequality always present? So you're referring to you know, systems where, where individuals or species or groups essentially proliferate vastly to take up a larger proportion, a disproportionate amount of resources. And yes, that is something that happens throughout nature. If you have a Petri dish and there's microorganisms growing on it, what will often happen is those microbes will, you know, some species or some group will totally dominate the Petri dish right. a- a- until they've used up all the resources and then they'll usually die. And I think that is the, the core concept. It's, it's driven by feedbacks. You know, if once one type of organism starts, starts utilizing the resources in a, in a really exploitative or efficient way, mm-hmm. they then end up being stronger, which allows them to use the resources more, which makes them stronger and they use the resources more. And humans are in the middle of that feedback explosion where we are, the more we exploit, the, the stronger we get, the more food we have, the more we, we reproduce and the more, uh, the more we exploit. But as with every single system, that has to end at some point. That we, that there's a, a finite amount of space and resources that is possible to maintain our population growth. And we're just hoping that we will start to see the decline of the human expansion before we've exploited all of the ecosystems that are necessary for all the other species to go on surviving. I mean, you mentioned the petri dish and bacteria, microbes, etc. Are there planetary presidents? Well, on a planetary scale, right? Well, we've thought this for a very long time that we would reach our carrying capacity. It's like that's what we mm-hmm. call the limit of our the, possible yeah the planet boundary. Yeah, the planet boundary idea we, too. Right. We keep thinking that we've we're, we will reach the the boundary soon, and yet what happens is humans are very good at, at innovation, at technological innovation, at you know n- new innovations that allow us to exploit resources in a different way or a more efficient way or a more effective way. And so we keep redefining the boundaries that are possible. However, at some point, there is undoubtedly categorically going to be a limit on those boundaries. And, and many people think that climate change is an indication that we have started to reach the, the extent of a, a kind of boundary. Maybe we, you know, we, we might still have enough food, but by altering the climate drastically, that will limit our potential to continue making that food. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we're likely to see population declines that, that are starting. So it's, it's possible that climate change is a, a you know, it's likely that, pro- that climate change is a product of our over-exploitation and it's the reaching of our carrying capacity or, or limits. 
And there's many other global threats that that you could say are the same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. How pe- how pessimistic are you as a scientist? I'm not pessimistic at all. <laughs> I'm extraordinarily optimistic. <laughs> I can see that, right? I would say that when I speak to people about about the fate of climate change, there are many scientists who are very pessimistic. But the proportion of people who are pessimistic. Is much higher among environmental scientists than in the general population. So when I speak to to someone who's who's not working in science, everybody feels like it's over. We're doomed. There's nothing we can do. But in science, I would say the 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 slight majority of people feel like there is a huge amount that we can still learn and do and and improve to make a more sustainable future. And even if climate change is go- Certainly, climate change is going to continue. Even if we stopped emitting carbon right now, it would continue for a very long time. But that doesn't mean that we can't make a vastly more sustainable, productive, and, and I'm going to say happy society that that is a much better world to live in. And hopefully, it will have a, a, a far reduced footprint on nature that will allow nature to to become resilient and survive better. And that will only feed back to helping us right. in the long term. So I'm hugely optimistic. Right. Something I, I want to ask you. In the countdown, the tech countdown speech you gave at the end of the speech, you said it. I'm paraphrasing. You said it's something about the the entire humanity. And in my art practice, in recent years, I start to think about whether we, in sort of addressing climate and ecological crisis, we are still only thinking about our own agency. Of course, you know by the example we were talking about before. Planting trees. This term, planting trees, sort of foregrounds human agency. But if we say we are going to facilitate or even support nature regeneration, we kind of lower ourselves a bit. We become a bit more humble, and we understand that nature has, you know, other species or other beings have a lot of wisdom in in repairing and、uh, healing. So, I, as artists, I feel that's a crucial point. To make in my art practice, to even in our current movement in addressing these crises, I still hear very different rhetoric. So some still see humans as the main driver of repair and healing, and I think I, I would like to say I, I, I am probably many people want to see us as really changing our mindset and say we have we have created a lot of mess, and now in repairing and healing, we actually need to really work with other、uh, other species and agencies of other species. I, I absolutely agree. I I think that when I mentioned that every species depends on other species to survive, that touches on the fact that every species has intrinsic value to this to the entire system,、mm-hmm. and. In the same way, humans are fundamentally a part of that. Not only do we depend on other species, but we also can be incredibly empowering for other species.、Mm-hmm. And when humans manage land or work with land in sustainable ways, we've got thousands of examples where where people have brought back biodiversity on a massive scale. And that's not only important for the functioning of ecosystems; it's important for our basic well-being. It's you know, nature is. It's the unexplained magic of our universe. You know, it's the it's the it's the thing that we still have a very. It's very difficult to even describe what life is, let alone how it arose, or, or scientifically d- pinning down the definition of life is very difficult. But what we know is that it's a a fundamentally unique feature, 
uh, of our known universe and maintaining it is just a critical thing that we can facilitate in many, many ways. In the Trillion Tree Project, you know, I, I asked this very sort of, maybe it's too far away, but I, I have a work where I'm, I'm trying to train myself to sense the, not only the biological being of trees, not only the social being of trees, but also the political being of trees. Right, so a lot of people talk about, now also talk about rights of nature, where the the legal personhood of trees, forests, etc. So when you think about the Trillion Tree Project, do you also think about the political ideas? Perhaps these trillion trees have rights or legal personhood. So it's not only thinking about increasing the number of trees, but also the um, sort of our respect for these beings. I, I do like this idea of, of the personhood of nature. I, I think, and I think it's one of many very good ideas that people have had recently to try and preserve the rights of nature. And so, yeah, I, I, I do think it's a useful vessel for us to think of how we should be protecting and preserving these ecosystems, for, not only for our own benefit, but also for the intrinsic value that right. they have. Right. Yeah, it's it's really great to talk to you. Um, I think it, you know what what you do is so important. And like I said, I, I really hope everyone you know uh, well, every country will put these things into primary school textbooks. I hope so too. Um, yeah, thanks. Yeah. I, I I think you're very right. I, yeah. I even find it, I really find it you know strange when I look at a newspaper. The the fraction of stories about nature is let's say one percent, five percent. And in all honesty, it should be 98%. Every single thing that exists. I know, exactly, right. I mean, every every cover story on these major newspapers every day should be about the situation. Yeah, yes. I totally agree. Yes, yes. Uh, and not just about the situation, but also about the, the heroes, that there's yes. hundreds right. of thousands of people around the world facilitating nature in ways that benefit every one of us. Right. And it's bizarre that they, that, get, that doesn't get noticed at all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I hope to see you in the future in person. And um, it would be nice to take a walk um, in person. Yeah, yeah, great. Okay. Yeah. Thanks so yeah, much for thanks, the call. Tom. Yeah. All right, then. Yeah, take care. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to listen to this. I'm extremely happy that you found time to have this conversation. I would like to invite our listeners once again, TC Bose, you are the 0.01% at Sharing Stiftung. Please come by before September 30th. The work can be seen every day and from Thursdays to Sundays, even until 7 p.m. For more information on the exhibition and more episodes of our podcast, please visit our website on www.sharingstiftung.de. Thank you so much and goodbye. Sie hörten den Sharing Stiftung Podcast. Weitere Folgen des Sharing Stiftung Podcasts gibt es auf Spotify, Apple Podcasts und auf sharingstiftung.de.